Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, well, good morning. Happy New Year, gang. Um, it is my privilege this morning to be opening up a new series entitled, We Are Being Transformed to Bring Transformation. And we're going to be journeying through uh, two letters written by the Apostle Peter. And here at the Oak, our vision is to join God's mission, to see this world transformed through Jesus's power to change lives. And we do that by loving God, by loving his family, and by loving the world. And Peter pursued the same vision in his own day. And we're going to look briefly at who Peter was um, and who he's writing to, because it's so easy to read scripture as a nice story and look for a moral to apply to our lives today and not really engage with the reality that these were real people being the church in extraordinary circumstances. So here's Peter's credentials for why we'd better sit up and take notice of what he has to teach us this morning. He was one of the 12 disciples called by Jesus. He was a close friend and companion in his ministry. This is Peter, um, originally called Simon, but Jesus gave him a new name. We can read about it in Matthew chapter 16. Peter means the rock. Jesus says, Peter, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church, and you're going to hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We get to read about his travels uh, with Jesus in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. We see him go on many missionary journeys, opening up the gospel doors to so many so that they can respond to Jesus and come into his kingdom. This is Peter, who, despite saying, Jesus, I would die for you, ends up not even denying even knowing him when Jesus was arrested. So he knows how it feels to deal with that gut-wrenching shame of knowing you've let God down. But importantly, this is also the Peter that the risen Lord Jesus takes out to breakfast on a restoration mission. Jesus knows that Peter denied him three times. And so he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter says, Lord, do you know that I love you? And Jesus, the good shepherd, tells him to feed his lambs, to shepherd his sheep, and to feed his sheep. He says, Peter, tend my flock, look after the church. This letter that we're reading this morning is a part of that calling. This letter has grown out of a life lived with God, of love for his friend and Lord Jesus. So in his letters, the first one that we're going to look at this morning, written with help from Silas, who again we can read about in the book of Acts, we find wisdom applicable to, to today as he shares his confidence that God will keep on opening up doors for his gospel. And he instructs us how to live a life of faith and obedience, being a co-worker of God on his mission in what is a challenging society that doesn't honour God's name. So that's Peter in a nutshell, but who's he writing to? Well, he's written to Christians scattered across um, an area that we now know as Turkey. And Peter's writing to encourage the church. We think he's writing around 62 AD in a painful time for the church. 
James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, one of Peter's close friends, has just been callously murdered by the Jewish high priest. Records say he was thrown down from the roof of the temple for refusing to deny Jesus. And then when he didn't die on impact, his enemies crushed his head with heavy stones. The church was persecuted. We know that the church is about to endure official opposition from the Roman Empire. Previously, it had sort of gone under the radar a little bit as a sect of Judaism that was accepted and approved by the Romans. But it's becoming clear publicly now that Christianity is separate from Judaism and the Romans are taking official steps. Paul has defended Christianity in the official Roman court. We can read about it in Philippians. Um, he's been freed, and then he gets rearrested and is martyred for his faith, as we read in 2 Timothy. We know from historical records that the emperor Nero blames the great fire of Rome a few years later in AD 64 on the Christians. And Peter's probably around Rome at this time and was executed, we think, under Nero's rule. So Peter has a huge task preparing the church for this new wave of persecution. He's grappling with the challenges of being a Christian in a society that has wildly different values and beliefs to the social norm. He knows that these Christians are committed to Jesus. They've had their lives transformed by the Spirit. But that's put them on the fringe of their communities and subjected them to persecution. And in the midst of all of this uncertainty, Peter writes them this letter. And we're going to work our way through the first 12 verses in little sections now. So it's going to pop up on the screen for you. But 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And Phil Moore uses a really helpful illustration to help us see what Peter's doing here. And he says it's a bit like the triangulation of a smartphone. And a smartphone, by establishing the position of transmitter masts, can work out its position. So long as it gets three fixed points, it doesn't matter how dark it is or how foggy it is, it can work out where it is. And the church is panicking and perhaps feeling a little bit lost, and Peter needs to look after them. He needs to help them get their bearings to know that the gospel is always going to triumph. So he gives them three fixed points. One, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knows the events of history before any of them happen. This all-knowing God says to them, call me Father. We're not chosen because of anything that we have done, but everything that he has done based wholly on his love, his mercy, and his grace. You might be feeling vulnerable and lost, but God has chosen to love you and make you family with him. Even in scary times, God sees them, he knows them, and he fathers them. And he does that for us too. 
Second point, they are brought to salvation through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, who brings conviction of sin, transformation, and sets them apart as holy. If they're feeling weak or they're feeling fearful, the Spirit can strengthen them and give them boldness. When they feel exhausted and quite frankly like chucking in the towel of their faith altogether, the Spirit will encourage them by helping them glimpse God's glory and reminding them of their place in his plans. And thirdly, God chose them to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. He says, you're the ones that are so precious that Christ shed his precious blood for you so that you might be set apart as holy, ready to do God's will. And just like the smartphone triangulates, this is how you know your position in the world. That salvation involves the work of the Father's love, the Spirit's bringing of conviction and transformation, and the Son who dies in our place. The full trinity of God, chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Spirit. He says, cry out for the gospel to triumph in your homes and your workplaces and your cities and your nations from that position of privilege. Because I don't know if you noticed, but Peter doesn't refer to anything about their identity besides their identity in Christ, not what they do or who they're descended from. And we must not forget that this is our primary identity too if we are followers of Jesus. If we're sensible, we put it in our diary to remind us to take our cars to get serviced so that anything that's just starting to go a little bit wrong can be put right before it does any damage. In the same way, we need to be intentional about reminding ourselves of our true identity in Christ. So that the things that might claim to be a part of our identity, like how much we earn or what the world sees of us or how popular we are, don't take a hold and breed pride or insecurity in us that might eat away at us. Everything about us starts with salvation, our personal relationship with God through Jesus, which gives us hope. So if this, for you, is a tough season, let the Trinity triangulate your true position in life. So moving on in our passage, uh, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. God has grace and peace in abundance. He's not stingy, but he is lavish in multiplying these things. And from verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's praising God because he's merciful. He's become our father. And becoming a Christian means new life has been birthed in us. It's transformed us by the Spirit, by his presence, by his love and his mercy. We've been brought back. 
We've been cleaned up, and although previously we may have lived for many purposes that were not the one that we were made for, putting our hope in all kinds of things that were wrong, now we are living in the full beauty of what we were made for, as people with a living hope. When most people think of hope, what I think they're really thinking of is optimism, We sometimes say, you know, we'll hope for the best, but we'll prepare for the worst, meaning that's the thing most likely to happen, but you never know, we might luck out and get the other thing. But that is not what Peter's talking about at all. Peter knows that the gospel will triumph. His hope is so tangible that it stirred him to worship in this passage. He's been an eyewitness to Jesus' death and resurrection. He knows it's a fact. And he's so sure of it, in a few more years, he'll be martyred for that faith. And he's the guy that says it gives us a living hope. It's not being optimistic. It's having confident assurance and a certain trust that God, who defeated sin and death on the cross, cannot be overcome by any amount of darkness. Ours is a living hope because we follow a living Lord Jesus who will return. And this hope is an anchor for our soul in the storms of life. We can read that in Hebrews chapter 6. But this anchor doesn't hold us back. This anchor moves us forward towards our eternity in his presence. Because being permitted to call God Father conveys even more than intimacy with him. It conveys inheritance. And this inheritance is incorruptible. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to fade away. It's eternal. Our salvation, as we are saved through faith in Christ, is waiting its completion at the return of our Saviour. Our future home and inheritance is guaranteed. It can't be modelled up like a hotel reservation. There's no chance we're going to arrive and find that we've been double booked. Here, this little voice that niggles at us and goes, well, suppose we don't make it. Suppose I'm not enough. Suppose I just haven't done enough good stuff. Where sometimes we get duped into believing that our salvation is some ways connected to our merit gets counted by the sure knowledge that we are shielded by the power of God. It tells us that in verse 5. It's a military word meaning guarded. And the tense means constantly. It keeps going on. We're united to Christ by faith. And we're not kept by our own effort, efforts or strength that would become exhausted or run out. But we are shielded by him in his power until his return. An inheritance that is kept safe for us and we are being kept safe for it through faith. Charles Spurgeon says, little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. What a gift faith and hope are. But hope is not a sedative that helps us to relax and wait things out. It's a shot of adrenaline that spurs us into action. We don't want to complacently wait around for him to come back going, oh, it's okay, we're sorted. We want to be spurred into action by a world that is desperately in need of living hope. 
called to join in God's mission to see the world transformed by Jesus' power to change lives. We're people chosen, but we're chosen by God for a purpose. And I don't know if you noticed, but right at the start of this letter, Peter refers to the readers as exiles or foreigners, not because they'd emigrated, but because they have dual citizenship of where they currently are, like we're currently in Leeds, and of God's new kingdom yet to be unveiled. And we too live in that space with a new purpose to signpost people to the kingdom. The kingdom that got ushered in by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but which is also still to come fully. We sometimes call it the now and the not yet. And in this time, as hope-filled people, the way we behave should, through transformation by the Spirit, reflect God's desire for humanity, being called to live a radically different lifestyle, both as a witness, signposting people to the kingdom, but it will also be a cause of opposition. These believers that Peter's writing to are being persecuted for their faith. And during this letter, Peter mentions suffering at least 15 times using eight different Greek words to do so. So let's read on from verse 6. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come that the proven genuineness genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy." For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. A lot of this letter is dedicated to the suffering of early Christians. How can we live with joy and faith, even in trying situations? We don't have tons of times this morning to focus on the huge subject of suffering, but what we can do is pull some helpful things from this passage. Firstly, that with eternal perspective, as painful as our trials may be, whether financial or going through health concerns, maybe bereavement or perhaps the breakdown of relationship, maybe the desire for our hopes and wishes not realised. Whatever trials it is that we are facing, this passage says they will not last forever That's in no way to belittle anybody's situation, but Peter is facing extreme persecution. He's seen many of his friends martyred for their faith. And he can see with eternal perspective that this is only for a little while. We can also acknowledge that trials are not easy, that we will experience grief and pain. Our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane cried out in pain. We don't have to put a brave face on to appear more spiritual. And we must support each other in the very real process of grief when we face trial. Peter 
then points that some of these trials can be essential as a training ground for spiritual growth, learning to trust in the faithfulness of God, even when his plans do not look like our plans, and we must learn to surrender our own. Trials can often be a place to develop trust that God loves us, even when we don't get what we want. I know in my own life, the times that my faith has grown the most have been the brutally painful ones. The ones where somehow miraculously the Spirit has graciously enabled me to get, get to a place of trust that God's promises and his goodness are true despite my circumstances. After all, he is the creator of the universe. He is the one who conquers sin and death victoriously, the one who flings stars into space. He is not someone we should invite into our lives as a consultant, whose advice we might choose to apply if it suits us and our plans. Or worse still, as our assistant, who we demand provides what we want to fit with our plans. He is the Lord, whom we must learn to be obedient to. And yet, thankfully, he is lovingly gracious to us in our failings. Peter uses the goldsmith as an illustration. Now, no goldsmith is ever going to waste precious ore by putting it into the smelting furnace for too long. It's going to be in there just long enough to remove the impurities so that it can be poured out to be something beautiful and valuable. Uh, Veersby says it has been said that the Eastern goldsmith kept the metal in the furnace until he could see his face reflected in it. So perhaps sometimes that's what the Lord is doing, keeping us in the furnace until the parts of us that cause damage to us refined away and we can reflect the glory and the beauty of Jesus now not all trials are from God many are from us as sinful humans we hurt each other but God always works in all things for the good of those who love him Romans 8 verse 28 says and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It doesn't say we see in all things God working together for good, because sometimes we just can't see it. Sometimes we can look back and see what God was doing, but sometimes we just can't see it at the time. But what Scripture is telling us is by the Spirit, we can know that God will work for our good that our love isn't based on physical sight, but spiritual relationship and the word. The enemy loves for life's trials to bring out the worst in us, but Christ can bring out the good. Fire can burn, but it can also purify. We can choose to be obedient in, in spite of our circumstances. And when we love someone, we trust them. And eventually that's what strengthens our hope. Perhaps that will also result in, as Peter says, us being filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Joy, unspeakable joy. 
Jesus will return. And while we might not rejoice in our circumstances, we look around us, we will rejoice looking ahead. On the day that Jesus is revealed at the end of time, perhaps we might even find ourselves being thankful for the trials that forced us to rely on him, strengthening and refining our faith. We have just a tiny bit more to cover, so let's go back to our passage for the last three verses. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. God told the prophets, those who knew God so well, they heard him speak his plans of what was to come, that they were ministering for a future generation. They received a glimpse of how God would rescue the world through his chosen one, the Messiah. And this new era brought about by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the giving of the Spirit was not God abandoning his previous plans and just starting from scratch, but rather him fulfilling them. In the chapters to come, Peter is going to draw on scriptures from Isaiah and Zechariah and others, and he's that God has promised to send the Messiah, and he has done it. And he promises here that one day the curtain will be drawn back and what has been kept safe for us in heaven, and Jesus himself will be revealed, and he will do it. That same Holy Spirit who taught the prophets and through them wrote the word of God for us transforms us he's with us now and he equips us to tell others putting us to work in our destined roles pointing others to God and his kingdom whilst also allowing us to delight in his presence our hope is based on the fact that Jesus has triumphed over sin and grave and that he will triumph in the end So how is he wanting us to respond this morning? How has the Spirit been prodding you this morning? Graham's going to come back and join us in just a moment as we sing and respond to this word. Perhaps this is a season of feeling a bit lost for you and needing to find yourself again and your identity based in the Trinity, his love for you based on the love of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son, the transforming work of the Spirit. Perhaps this is a hard season where you are facing very real trials and you need the Spirit to fill you afresh, to ask him to come into your life afresh, to give you the strength and the boldness that you need for this season. Perhaps the Spirit has been stirring something in you about what it means to share this hope with others. Or perhaps even that this is a hope that you want and maybe haven't grasped hold of before. Whatever.
whatever it is that the Lord is leading you in, just spend this time with him. Bring those things that are on your heart before him. and Seek his will in your life and in your circumstances that he might be made known to you afresh this morning. I'm going to pray for us. I'll hand over to Graham. Oh, loving Lord Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross and you died for us, that you did what we could never do for ourselves. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We thank you that you are with us. We pray, fill each one of us afresh. Be stirring our hearts on how it is you want us to respond to you this morning and your word. We pray for those who are suffering at the moment. Lord, be with each one in their trials. Strengthen them, work for every possible good to come from their circumstances. Give them the strength and equipping they need to weather this storm. Lord, help them to feel your presence with them at this time, Lord. Lord, we pray that the news of your hope, that is sure and steadfast and living, would stir our souls to share your message of freedom and hope with others. We pray you give us boldness to share your gospel as Peter did. We pray, move amongst us now, Spirit. Be at work in each of our lives. Help us to surrender to you the things that we need to. In the wonderful love and name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.